Make America Trump-Free Again is dedicated to removing the orange buffoon from office. It's the best thing we can do for the country. Original artwork printed in vibrant color on t-shirts, caps, and hoodies. Go to mafta2020.com. That's M-A-T-F-A 2020.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. To simply exist in the world is to know that there are plenty of things that don't fit into simple binaries. And yet, even in seemingly open-minded spaces, we are encouraged to erase those nuances and pretend as if they didn't exist. In the December issue, Alex Marzano Lesnovich writes about their experiences as a genderqueer person, someone who doesn't identify as male or female. They detail the lifelong process of coming to that realization that genderqueer was not only an option, but the right self-descriptor for them. I spoke with Morzano Lesnovich over the phone about the process of writing the essay, as well as the day-to-day experiences of existing in a world that, whether at the clothing store or airport security check-in, constantly sorts us into male or female. There's plenty of discussion about the importance of representation in the public consciousness, and there are alternately cynical and earnest attempts for representation in the media or even with clothing stores like Zara had a genderless clothing line. But at worst, these are consumer choices. And the subtitle of your piece and its focus is How to Tell a Genderqueer Story. So can you talk about that process and how you attempted to shape the essay in a way that reflects a specifically genderqueer narrative and voice? Absolutely. So for me, I mean, I I understood, as is in the essay very early on, that the words girl, female, woman didn't quite resonate. And that was a feeling that stayed with me for such a long time. It has always been the case that I have felt called by the wrong name. And one of the things that has happened as the culture has shifted is that I I had to learn that there was language for who I was, that there was language that wouldn't make me feel like being called the wrong name. I vividly remember like the first time I met someone, it didn't make it into the essay. Um, The first time I met someone, he used they, them pronouns. We were on a date and they explained that their pronouns were they, them. And my first reaction, I mean, I'm not proud of this. I'm actually writing about this at the moment. Um, My first reaction was kind of jealousy and anger. Um, This reaction of, you can do that. You can't do that. What about grammar? You can't do that. (laughs) And so I had that awful reaction, right, that people often have to me now. And I I had to sit with that and sort of, and, and they said something to me that has stayed with me just for years. You know, why? Why should your outdated and actually incorrect, a historian would say, feelings about grammar override my ability to articulate my identity? And I had to kind of sit with that and think about why it made me so uncomfortable. And, and I knew, like I, I knew, I understood that what I was feeling was jealousy. And that sent me over the years, searching for this question of what made it so hard to claim that language? What made it so difficult? And once I did start claiming that language, why did I feel 
Like I needed to apologize whenever someone apologized to me for getting it wrong. Why did I feel like it was a burden to ask someone to use that language? And a lot of that had to do with the way we don't have a public narrative of what that language even means. It's like when we talk about the language now, often we're talking about a container, a container for an identity, but we don't have an emotional narrative that articulates that identity. We have like a trans crossing narrative and I'm so grateful we do. I think it resonates with a lot of binary trans people and it has freed a lot of people. But for me, it never quite fit. And I, the essay kind of came out of the realization that I might not be alone in that. And then I needed to articulate what that process had been for me. Because if I look back, my recognition that girl, female, woman didn't fit sent me for many years into an attempt to try to make boy, man, male fit. And it just never quite did. It's never quite fit. So I'm working on a book now that's called Wolf and Neither, from which this essay, from which I adapted this essay. And it's because of that idea of being both and neither. And how do you tell a story where both and neither is the destination, where it's not a crossing? So that's it's slightly different than like the commercial space making room for us. It's like what's the emotional content that drives that commercial space? What's the emotional content that even drives my deep desire to not have to choose one side of the clothing store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you mentioned briefly that this is ahistorical, this idea of this binary. And in the not so distant past, a person who was labeled female at birth could go off and quote unquote, become a man by wearing trousers and having a male profession and seducing women and, you know, maybe even being married. Similarly, the term gay and straight are comparably new. Can yeah. we touch on the historical turn toward this essentialism and rigidity about sexuality and gender? Yeah, my understanding is basically that Darwin won. <laughs> that the minute you had a narrative that said procreation is what matters and genitalia is what matters, things kind of centralized into this essentialist view. And we know it doesn't fit, right? We know that intersex people exist. We know in history that there have been all these figures for whom the binary doesn't fit. You know, last week, I don't know if you saw that the public universal friend went viral, this old Wikipedia entry of someone who was born in 1752, who um, almost died. And then when they didn't die, they, they sort of came back from this sickness and declared themselves to be without gender and refused gendered language for the rest of their life and dressed in androgynous clothing and, and was a preacher and formed um, a church around this. So I think I feel very comfortable saying like, there's a person for whom the binary didn't fit. So we know it, we turned towards it and we solidified it and we sort of became even more urgent in our solidification thereof, like witness gender reveal parties, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> And witness like the the profound separation in children's toys that I think is more extreme now than it was even when I was a child. Yeah, we've become very committed to this essentialist view. But part of what I'm interested in in the history is, you know, and I can only fit a certain amount of it into the essay, is this idea that it's never actually quite fit. One of my favorite examples is an old British legal case in which someone who was found to occupy more of an androgynous space was legally mandated to wear a suit 
with an apron tied over it every time they went out in public so as to visibly, so as to make their androgyny visible to others. Which is neither here nor there, but kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've become just really interested in the way that the binary came in and sort of solidified into something quite hardcore. And almost immediately, we had all these slippages that said, this doesn't really fit. But the slippages, in some ways, have always meant that we've, um, we've become more attached to it, right? We've become more attached to the great pink and blue divide. And yet there's this interesting way in which people are now starting to say, hold on, that doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. That doesn't suit me. I mean, do you feel that things like gender reveal parties are reactionary? Like, I, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone who has... Yes, I a, do. I mean, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I think we see this, right? We see backlash whenever there's change. Yeah. And so the, the looser you get, I mean, one thing I've noticed is that sometimes when I'm in a space where a number of people have, you know, stirred me or mammed me or like when there's, when there's clear that my appearance that day is causing people a certain amount of um, confusion about where I fall on the gender binary. And this is true, as, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, I'm on testosterone. So this becomes ever more true as, as markers like my voice has slowly lowered a little bit and mm -hmm. certain visual markers are changing. Um, I often encounter the person who like suddenly says the word ma'am every half sentence. <laughs> and it's so clearly like an anxiety that's like, this is right, this is right, right? This is right, I can say this, this is right. Um, and it's, it's far more like I will be, sometimes I'll be with a, a gender conforming like cis female friend um, and I will get mammed more than them because they're not touching off whatever subconscious anxiety, and this is my read anyway, that they're not touching off whatever subconscious anxiety is happening in that person's mind. And the person is just like, but the binary, right? <laughs> I must assert the binary. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we are in this like, rethinking moment that is often hard for cultures, right? To go to have this massive rethinking. And if you're not familiar with it, if you don't know someone in your life for whom the binary doesn't fit, or if they're not public with you about it, um, I think it can be quite jarring to people. I think if, if they feel comfortable in a very binary world, it may be quite foreign to them, the idea that someone else doesn't. As a friend of mine put it to me, a, a dear friend of mine put it to me early on when he really didn't understand what was going on. He was just like, but I don't understand. Like, my wife can wear jeans. And I was like, well, that's not <laughs> cool. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Like, if you, if you don't experience gender stereotyping as, like, profoundly violative of who you are, it can be difficult, I think, to articulate the urgency. Well, I often just try to say, like, imagine being called the wrong name your whole life. Yeah. And I think your story about this inability to understand or understand the importance of it, or even like the problems with people being like, well, that's grammatically incorrect. You touch on this briefly in the essay, and it could probably be an essay in and of itself, is getting those around you to use your preferred pronouns and how they tend to react, which usually results in them asking if they th should think of you differently. So can yeah. you elaborate what that process of education 
has been like and that you are not asking them to think of you any differently? I mean, I am asking them to think of me differently if the way they've thought of me is as a cis woman. But I'm also sort of questioning why, why that should be the key for how they think of me. So it, it is a shift. I mean, people have had to have had to either shift in how they think of me or it's been interesting to me that the reaction I've gotten from a lot of people is just, oh, of course, I just didn't have language for it before. I got a really moving email from one of my former students at Harvard uh, two days ago, actually, in response to the Harvard's essay where he was like, I was completely shocked. And then I realized I was completely not shocked, <laughs> which I think speaks to maybe something that is legible to people where it's like, yes, this person doesn't quite suit the binary. I, I just don't have language yet for it. And then you give someone the language and they're like, oh, of course, that makes sense. But I think that that requires understanding what the language means, that it's not just like swapping out a label. It's finding a, a label that suits the actual container, that suits like the actual content inside that container. Right. Um, that's who a person is. But yeah, I would say I am, I am think, asking them to think of me differently. It has, it's interesting. It's to people who've met me now, where I, and I put this in the, in the piece, um, where I just look very different than I did a couple of years ago. It is like comically incomprehensible to them <laughs> that my pronouns were ever she or stuff like that. But for me, and I use the language lived pronoun rather than preferred pronoun, just to try to consistently emphasize that this is something stronger than a preference. Yeah, I mean, it does require a change in how, in how you see somebody. If you've known that person a really long time. And I'm, I'm curious, I'm interested in that in general, because even people who have a binary transition often still experience that those who have known them the longest kind of mess up their pronouns the most, um, because they're mm -hmm. so used to thinking of them a certain way that even maybe, maybe even the visual information of a medical transition is not enough initially to overcome that person's longstanding training. And it is training, like a lot of just getting used to this language is training. Yeah. I mean, what would that training look like? Is it simply just through these networks of knowing or is there a way to kind of gradually, non-threateningly yeah. <laughs> deconstruct these, this gender essentialism for everyone? Because, it, you know, as you rightly say, it's really ingrained in so much of our culture in ways that are benign and then not so benign. I think it's similar to the process, or I hope it will be similar to the process of getting used to the idea that um, homosexuality existed. Right? Like yeah. knowing somebody who, and that, and that is a change that has happened, I think, just very, like there's been huge changes just in the last 10, 15 years, right? Where all of a sudden more and more people coming out met more and more people knowing somebody who was impacted by views around homosexuality and then slowly having to shift, slowly changing. We know that knowing someone personally who's impacted moves people more than the theories and the ideas, which is for me, it's part of why it's important to write something that feels as intimate as I hope the Harvard piece does. Where I'm like, let me tell you, let me use the space of my body to tell you why these ideas aren't just ideas they are like lived and personal and urgent and immediate. That's one of the things I always hope writing can do. 
is bridge distances between people. So to, to me, I'm, I'm interested in all the, the movements right now around gender inclusive classrooms and the large numbers of public schools and liberal spaces that are, are doing a lot of education around this, saying you can't assume someone's gender, saying here's what pronouns are, et cetera, et cetera. I wish it weren't so political. I wish that that were happening in conservative spaces too. <laughs> Um, but yeah. of course, that's a broader culture war situation. Um, mm. I'm also interested in the increasing number of young people who are identifying as gender nonconforming. Uh, I threw a couple of statistics on that into the essay, but it really is this huge rise that when you say to people, okay, you have, you might have other options. It turns out that resonates with a lot of people, right? And what is so threatening about that? Why is it so threatening to say we might open things up a bit? So that's part of it. But I think a large part of it is just as it has always been, people telling their stories and those stories reaching other people and a slowly, 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 one hopes in concert with policy changes, right? In concert with ID changes, mm -hmm. in concert with a third box appearing on doctor's forms, you know, to check a different mm -hmm. I think that is, is, is how lasting change happens, the mix of all these different ways. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a piece for the New York Times about going through a TSA screening as a genderqueer person and how kind of, um, not. I mean, it was violating. Everyone experiences unpleasantness with TSA, the security theater that we almost endure when we yeah. fly, but how that is a space, a very public space where there is no understanding of what to do. It's this very intimate but public experience that, again, even though there are, your doctor can understand that, okay, maybe this person is nonconform, gender nonconforming, but then when you get to the airport, there's just like, well, which one is it? Like, it's, it's, it's kind of horrifying, really. Yeah, and it's um, absolutely, and it, it, part of what I'm interested in that moment, in, in that moment, is how interestingly it, arbitrary it is and what it reveals about the arbitrariness so mm. right the individual tsa agent is empowered to make a guess on the passenger sex and they have two options and they have to make a split second decision and for me i literally get coded differently depending on what blazer i'm wearing and i'm like that's <laughs> based on the blazer i'm wearing you are going to set an algorithm that has assumptions about the shape of my body and not just the shape of my body because that algorithm controls what undergarments are expected mm. um, and where extra fabric is expected to be found so if for example a trans man like passes through the machine or even just a, someone who identifies as a woman but is red as a guy based on how they're dressed and they have a binder on or they have a bra on or whatever that's going to trigger an alert right right and that I'm so interested in it in part because it, it, it to me, it, it reveals something a, a little bit ridiculous about how we make these assumptions. And it also, most other countries don't do it, right? Some of the standards in the UK do it, but mo most other places, like, this isn't a thing. Yeah. Um, and in hearings, the TSA itself was not able to articulate why this needed to be a thing. That was interesting to me, um, but it was also interesting to me because it was a manifestation of just really people just don't know how to code it mm. and so many it is commonplace amongst my friends 
that they will think about how to dress just to pass through that scanner. Some of them will tell them which buttons for somebody to push. But it's also just commonplace that people get crotch pat downs because they're not being read. Mm -hmm. And that makes flying just a fundamentally, I think, different experience for trans people, right? Yes, we're all used to being dignities of TSA, but we don't all get crotch pat downs every time. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Which is a particularly invasive pat down. Um, And it's just so commonplace. I, I got a lot of mail after that piece came out and it, it was a very mixed reaction. It was like people were calling my office at the college where I teach to tell me that trans people didn't exist, which was in itself interesting. Mm. I would want to say like, who are you calling then? Um, <laughs> but I also got a lot of mail from trans people who said that they hadn't understood why they were, why as they started to pass more, they were now being pulled aside for screaming every single time. They just didn't understand. They didn't know about the button that the agent, you know, chooses. Um, And that I think is interesting to me where we don't even know how deeply this assumption that there are only two genders and you can make assumptions about someone's body based on the clothing they wear. We don't even know how deeply endemic this is to our society. Yeah. And I think this brings up another issue is that, I mean, do you feel like a person's relationship with gender roles can be more or less performative? I mean, you're talking about people, trans people choosing to dress a certain way to avoid this this situation at the airport. But do you feel like you're having to perform less except for when you're at the airport now that you aren't trying to conform to the male female binary? Oh, yeah, it's great. I can Twitter whatever, whatever the heck I feel like. Um, yeah, it's it, like it. It. I. I see both how much more comfortable I am and how much uh, disruption I sometimes end up causing. So I tend to be someone who I I dress predominantly in male clothing because that's what my option is. Because we don't we we tend not to have a lot of um clothing that's sold as female clothing. Right. Uh, that suits my my sense of style because things are often so stereotypically binary in their in their in their way. But our American idea of male clothing is is very uh, loose and not tailored. So I specifically this is I'm really getting into the weeds here in this, but I specifically <laughs> have to like order my clothing from like the UK, <laughs> um, which is in itself ridiculous. But I found myself in Paris needing to do promotional events for my last book, and I didn't have enough clothing with me. And I went to Galleries Lafayette to try to buy a couple of outfits to wear. And this was in January, and I, I was not permitted to try anything on. All the salesmen in the, in the male side of the store kept telling me that the clothing was not for me. Hmm. And literally wouldn't let me try it on until one you know, wonderful clearly gay uh, sales guy like sort of took pity on me got involved and yes we had our like pretty woman moment uh, <laughs> with all the bags and whatnot. <laughs> but there's a way in which I may feel more comfortable but oftentimes I am confronted with people who like just don't know what to do with me right like the gym yeah. obviously has, has male female changing rooms my old CrossFit coach was like you know, everything was ladies, everything was gentlemen. And I was like, cool, could you just like use different language? And he was just mystified. Like he was just like, no, no, these are the options. 
these are this is who exists. I talked my brought my dogs for training sessions at um PetSmart and the trainer was like, Well, you ladies, your dog is not gonna listen to you because you're ladies. Oh. Um, <laughs> right. But it's, it's like it was like so, you know, thankfully for PetSmart, they actually understood the problem. They refunded the money and they had to talk about language with like their staff. But these moments may sound really small, but they add up to just continually being told, no, you have two options. You have two options. Exactly. You have two options. Yeah. Pick one. And what part of what I think the project we're in sort of socially right now is to try to explain why that may not be sufficient and indeed may not be ne- may not be necessary. I've been really struck by, for example, my my French publishing team, which has had to figure out how to like approach me linguistically and right. bios and things like that um, because the language is so binary gendered. Yes, um, but the women on the publishing team last time I was there in October. One of them said to me really thoughtfully, you know, I think what you're talking about is not just important for people who identify as genderqueer, but has like this trickle down effect on, for example, she feels a great deal of pressure to dress a certain way to perform femininity to a certain extent Mm. to fit in with the dominant French professional culture. And there's a way in which a lot of people don't feel captured by very strict, very polarized binary settings. And so if we can loosen these up to make space for the people like me who don't identify with the binary, I think it will also create space for those people who do identify with the binary, but maybe not all the way. Yeah. So I was thinking about this earlier today also because um, I have a an ex-girlfriend who um, is very androgynous presenting and um, very petite. And one thing that would happen when we would be, we, we often would like rent a cabin for vacation together. And I was thinking earlier today of this moment, we were in New Hampshire, we were at a Dairy Queen and a car slowed down and yelled uh, a gay slur that starts with F mm-hmm. um, at her. And it became clear that what had happened was that they had read us as two men and they had read us as a gay male as a cis gay male couple and that she was being read as an effeminate gay man and this slur was being shouted at her and for her it was profoundly upsetting also because she identifies very strongly as a female right she just happens to like ball caps <laughs> and and like jean shirts and isn't that you know in the moment she like recovered herself turned around and yelled at least yelled the right slur you know turning it into a joke but it was also this like profoundly alienating experience for her in which she felt like she was being told, oh, no, you're the wrong kind of woman. And that has to do with how strong our assumption of this binary is. I mean, all of these things that you're describing, they constitute the majority of life, right? They may seem like small anecdotal things, but these are the majority of our daily existence on this planet. It's not something that is, again, it's a cumulative experience that makes it grating or difficult or just in your face when you're not expecting it to be, despite these measures that you've taken. In the essay, you acknowledge that there might be a political risk in questioning the dominant narrative of transgenderism, which you 
you rightly identify as sort of a binary narrative at a time when trans people face discrimination and high rates of violence. Um, and of course, under the Trump administration, exclusion from crucial social services. It does seem like gender essentialism might make it easier for trans people to advocate yeah. for themselves in a culture that sees male and female. But is there a political cost to the binary narrative, too, especially if it isn't true for everyone? I think so. I mean, I think I, I, passing is really interesting, right? Like passing has freed a lot of people to live as their true selves. And what for me has always been difficult about it is like, how do you pass as something that nobody knows how to see? Right. And that's the space I do think it's risky to talk about. I do think it's risky to talk about in this political moment. And I've had a lot of conversations with binary trans friends about this because if someone doesn't want, and certainly there are plenty of binary trans people now who want to be seen as trans, but there are also many who want to pass and not be seen as trans. And there's a way in which opening up visibility for trans people in general can complicate that passing. I think it's, yeah, I, th I think it is tremendously complicated and tremendously risky. My hope is to create more space for people. My hope is that by recognizing more options, we make things safer for more and more and more people. But it is complicated, and it is especially complicated right now. On that point of trying to present as something that nobody really, to present gender queerness, and you, mm -hmm. you've talked about taking hormone therapy, there is like, there's some really interesting tension there in the, in the idea that while you don't wanna be a man or a woman, there is still for you this right point that exists somehow in relation to the pole of male and female? Or is that a tension for you? How do you, how do you think about this? It is absolutely a tension for me. I mean, the reason I ended up starting hormone therapy was that, you know, that word, the word trapped gets tossed around a lot in sort of simplified trans narratives. But mm -hmm. um, for me, it's one that, and it's one that a lot of people don't resonate it doesn't resonate with them. It absolutely did resonate with me. I felt constantly trapped by this idea that I could signal as hard as I could with my hair, with my clothing, with my mannerisms. And yet there would always be something that made someone visually sort me into the female category. Mm. Often the, the tone of my voice, like I said, that part's not visual, but the, the tone of my voice, the shape of my jawline, uh, things that I just couldn't control. And I felt so, tra it, it, it was this strange, uh, almost betrayal feeling by my body of just, this is who I am. This is who I want to be seen. This is what I'm working so hard to make visible. And yet there is something that happens that people just sort this way. And that's where the hormones come in. Like that's what makes it easier, not just for other people to read, but frankly, for myself to experience less dysphoria. I didn't really write about dysphoria in the Harper's piece, but mm -hmm. it's, I think like many trans people, I have experienced a great deal of it in my life yeah. <laughs> where, where my relationship to my body suddenly becomes profoundly alienated because it just feels like, oh God, I'm in the wrong thing. And for me, I had to learn that it might be possible to do something about that. Because for so long, I thought if I didn't want to transition to being to a binary male space, 
and there was nothing I could do. But thankfully, we live in sort of a modern age, and <laughs> sort of there are these new ideas. Yeah, right. We live in a in a moment that has some gestures towards modernity, anyway. <laughs> um, and there are these like new guidelines that you know the trans health organizations have promulgated, and it is possible to take to do what I do and take like a lower dose of testosterone and have like a slight shifting on that on that scale. And for me, at least, I have found the liberation from the amount of dysphoria to be um, just wonderful, just shockingly wonderful, wonderful in ways I never even knew. I didn't know I didn't have to have that feeling, Hmm. Um, that feeling that I carried all the time. But it is complicated because there is no way to freeze the effect. And so I think we're sort of, I think of us all who are in this moment as being sort of renegades or (laughs) explorers trying to figure out like, where are we going? What are we doing? This is possible now. What does it mean to have this be possible? And that's something that I don't think we know the answer to yet, but that we find out in living. My last question is kind of a big question, but I feel it's important. Traditionally, the T in LGBT. Q plus has been ignored. It's only very recently been elevated to a station of importance, not only in political narratives, but in popular culture and just in terms of like getting young trans youth help. Along this journey, how do you feel that your space in queer spaces, if it's, you know, a gay bar or just with other queer people, do you feel like your position within these spaces has changed at all? Even though, you, as you said, you've become more comfortable with who you are on every level. That is a great question that I think we are all still figuring out culturally. Mm. Because there's a way in which queer has become, I think, a, a preferred identifier for a lot of young people over something as binary as, like, gay and lesbian. Mm-hmm. In part because of the, the, the question of what, what happens with trans people. And certainly, like, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, like TERFs, yeah. in the lesbian community have been, have been a big problem. And I think it is, it is complicated. It's the question of if you have, if as a group you have fought for acceptance in a certain way, sometimes the temptation is to draw lines and say, okay, well, we're seen as valid this way. So you're threatening that. So like, go away, don't be part of this community. Mm-hmm. And to me, the increasing acceptance of trans as an umbrella and um, of queer as an even bigger umbrella is trying to make space for more people. For myself, I never quite felt like I fit in an entirely binary lesbian communities. I often felt like it was a bit of a secret that I didn't fit in. Hmm. I felt just as alienated as I did in cis straight communities. And, but that was, you know, it has helped me tremendously to be able to have the language for it to say, look, that's because I identify very strongly as queer. For myself, I tend to use the label dyke rather than lesbian and I'm comfortable identifying as like a trans dyke. Um, But these words all mean different things to different people. And I, I think for me, what I'm interested in in the movement in the community now is that that cue that gets added on the end of LGBTQ. 
mm-hmm. that says, okay, we're going to queer the expectations here. We're going to make room for however you identify. And that seems really important to me to say there's space here for, for people who identify strongly as binary or strongly assist, and there's space here for people who don't. And don't we need all of us? <laughs> well, I, that's, I think that's a good place to end a hopeful note. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel hopeful about it, I will say. I mean, I do think it's a risky moment to, to talk about it, but there's also these kind of exciting changes happening. I wouldn't have thought documentation would move me terribly much, but having a driver's license where my gender is X is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that that's changing. Kansas, I believe Kansas just became the 49th state not that long ago to allow trans people to modify their birth certificate. So there, there is change happening. Like I said, I really do. I really do believe just sort of talking about very quotidian things is extremely important because again like you can understand this on a conceptual level and then just not have it in the world so i think i think it's great to hear stories like shopping in france so thank you for sharing (laughs) i think it's hard to capture the pain of it all like it's hard to explain to people why this hurts or why this matters and i can say like okay like since my presentation has changed i've had multiple experiences in which you know, men have gotten in my face shouting threats of rape. Like, I've had multiple, like, violent experiences. But those are almost more easily shaken off than the just day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day message of invisibility. And I think you put it well when you said, like, those are the moments that add up to life, these, these little quotidian moments. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 